my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today, I'm speaking with Gregory Offner. He is a keynote speaker and performance expert. He is one of the most in-demand experts on the topic of professional performance and navigating disruption. His clients include Fortune 100 companies, and he is often asked to keynote at conferences where industry leaders and executives turn to him for new perspectives on how to elevate performance, eliminate disengagement, and make work suck less. So, Gregory, thank you so much for coming on, agreeing to have this conversation with me, and um, like reviewing your like some of your professional achievements and just what you're doing now. Uh, I, I'm really curious to dig into what you're most passionate about. But, uh, you know, like I said before hitting record, you know, I want to start off where it all began. But, you know, thank you for coming on. Sure, Dave. Thanks for having me in here. It's a pleasure to get to speak with you and your listeners. Let's start with where you were born and raised and, and what were some of your early influences? Sure. I was born not far from, uh, from where I live now, but I was raised in a rural suburb of Philadelphia called Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Uh, for anybody who's watching The Gilded Age on HBO right now, that first episode, the train station where the two characters met was at Lansdale. I mean, Lansdale's claim to fame was being a fairly large transit hub uh, back when the trains, you know, the railways were really the only way to get from here to there. So raised out there, I mean, literally raised across the street from a working dairy farm. Um, I tell people that kind of cow poop is a comforting smell to me because that sort of, you know, it reminds me of home and lived there for most of my life. Now my wife and I and our, our uh, daughter live in Philadelphia. And some of my early influences related to music, music was always on in my household. Um, my dad was a drummer. My mom enjoyed music, although she would be the first to tell you that she is not musically inclined per se. Um, but a lot of my babysitters when I was young, were musically gifted or musically talented. So we would sing and, and, and make up songs and make up rhythms together. I was fascinated by the drums. My one cousin had a drum set in his basement and every time we would go over, I would quietly sneak away from the adults and then they'd hear boom, 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 coming from the basement. They'd all come down like, stop it, that's so loud. But eventually they, they got me lessons, piano lessons and drum lessons, and I got better at those instruments. And I wound up getting scholarships to a military school for high school where I performed in the Valley Forge Military Academy Regimental Band. We toured the world uh, performing as, as professional artists at a very young age. And that interest sent me to uh, ultimately study music in college. And at least for the first year and a half of college, I was studying music education. I thought I wanted to be a music teacher but made a pivot 
I became more interested in philosophy and psychology. And so that's where I focused most of my efforts and graduated with a fairly unique degree uh, in music, psychology, and, and philosophy. Um, so how did I get here where I'm keynoting all over the world and sharing my ideas on performance and engagement with organizations? It came from nearly losing the ability to speak completely. In 2015, I was uh, about to start a gig in Philadelphia at my regular piano bar. And I was all situated to start the night. I was playing the first song. We call them comfort songs as piano players because the first song isn't really about um, performing so much as observing how the crowd reacts to the performance yeah, and seeing what's going to get them excited and, and what kind of mood they're in. So my comfort song was sitting on the dock of the bay. So I, I get ready to start with that powerful uh, G chord. And as I open my mouth to sing, nothing, nothing came out. And I was terrified. Fast forward several years later, I had had 15 surgeries to repair and rebuild my vocal cords and, and a valve in my stomach that had stopped functioning. Um, so it turned out acid reflux was a, uh, an important part of how I lost my voice so quickly. Um, and in the middle of that process, I just made the decision, Dave, that I never wanted to go back to a W-2 job. I, I, I was paid very well for what I did, but I really didn't enjoy what I did. And I wanted to enjoy what I did, even if that meant making less money. Um, and, and so I found that was that was in the corporate world, like your 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 piano playing was a separate gig altogether from the your professional life, right? Yeah, I was doing what a lot of people do. I had multiple jobs. I mean, so you know, the day job was was great. Financially, it was nice. I was in sales. And when you're doing well in sales, you're doing well. Um, but it was it was a grind uh, for me. And it was a grind I wasn't particularly passionate about. So at night, I worked another job, I worked in piano bars and solo piano bars and theaters and you know, pretty much anywhere I could perform that I found fun and enjoyable, I would go and try to perform there. I've, I've done piano for theater shows where I'm sort of like in the pit band. Uh, I've done all kinds of weird stuff musically, but it, and as most people who are musically inclined know, it doesn't pay very well, but it was very emotionally and spiritually rewarding for me. So I was sort of tugged between these two worlds, right? The comfort of this corporate gig and, and the fulfillment of this music gig. And so when I, when I made it about halfway through the surgeries and it became clear that I could get my voice back. I didn't know how what it would look at the end, but it was clear I wasn't going to be mute for the rest of my life. I said, you know, I don't want to go back into a sales role. I don't know that I want to go back into the corporate world. I want to do something that I, that I, I see moving people. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't music performance for me, although I wanted performance to be a part of what I did. It, it became this world of keynote speaking. And I arrived at it through a mentor, someone that I met at an event that I was attending to try and develop myself and a complete stranger standing in front of me in the concessions line, just turned around and started a conversation because of her courage to start that conversation. Um, I learned a lot about her. And then she finished telling me her story. She said, well, tell me about you. And the thing, Dave, that I learned about the power of strangers in that moment was we are often more honest with people who we don't know than we are with people who we love and who care about us dearly. And in that moment, I just decided to bear it all. I thought, I'll never see this person again. And if she doesn't like it, you know, who cares? I'll never see her again. So I just shared everything. And as I'm sharing it, Dave, I can see her eyes sparkling. And I can see a smile like slowly creeping across her face. And I said, 
Svetlana. Her name was Svetlana. I said, I said, what? I can tell you the wheels are going up there. What is it? She said, you don't see it, do you? I said, no, I, I shrugged my shoulders and said, I clearly don't. What don't I see? And Svetlana said, Greg, you've been trying to keep all of your different interests in buckets. So think you've got a bucket for psychology. You've got a bucket for sales. You've got a bucket for music. You've got a bucket for this and a bucket for that. And I think it's killing you inside. And I wonder what it would look like if you merged, if you poured all those buckets together. I thought about that for what felt like an eternity, but was probably only a second or two. And I said, well, what do you think it would look like? And she said, I'm glad you asked. And she did that thing. I don't know if you've ever had somebody do this to you where they sort of put their hand on your shoulder and they kind of spin you one way to put it to show you something, you know? So she spun me one way and pointed towards the stage where this speaker, this keynote speaker was, was up there delivering a seminar. And she said, what if it looks like that? And I get chills when I tell this story because at that moment, it was like a bolt of lightning hit me. I would have never thought of that as a career, as an option. I thought you had to climb Mount Everest, fly in a space shuttle, you know, to be, to be on a stage like that. But Svetlana opened my eyes to the possibility of what if. And because of that, I started interviewing other people who were doing what I might like to do, speakers, coaches, authors, consultants. And I learned that it was within reach. It would take a lot of work. But if I wasn't willing to put in the work for myself, who was I ever going to put in the work for? And so I doubled down and made the investment in myself. And, you know, now a few years later, I'm pleased to say I've been able to travel the world and speak to audiences on in several countries. Um, and this is how I make my full-time living. And it's the best job I never thought I'd have. You talk a lot about performance and, you know, you, you get hired by companies to come and help them develop these high performing teams. What, what is something that the people listening could do right now to improve their performance at work? Yeah. If you're listening to this and you're interested in improving your performance at work, I would say take a look at your annual salary. Whatever that number is, look at that and ask yourself, am I delivering this in value? Whatever that number is, am I delivering that in value for my employer? If you are, you've got a problem. You've got a problem because your employer doesn't want a one-to-one -one return. They want a multiple, just like you or I would on an investment. We need to deliver more than what we're paid for. And when we do that, we have the right to ask for incentive, to ask for growth in what we earn. That's how this game is played and won, if it's a game, is to deliver more value than you're paid for, then to point that out to the employer and ask for more pay then figure out a way to deliver more than that and then point it out and then ask. Most individuals are really bad advocates for their self. They go into a conversation about pay or about a promotion. Half cocked is, is a very crude way to describe it, but they really don't think out the conversation effectively. They don't treat it in a way like a sales conversation, but that's that's what it is. I know for some listeners, they're going, oh, sales, that's a bad word. But Zig Ziglar, uh, one of my mentors, at least in, in the form of his books and audio cassettes, 
Zig Ziglar always said, selling is a transference of emotion. It's getting you to feel about something the way I feel about it. And in a conversation about growing our pay or, or getting a promotion or growing our career, what we're trying to do is get the other person, whether it's our boss, the, the decision-making committee, to get them to feel the way we feel. And so if we feel like we deserve a raise based on our impact, our contribution to that organization, how do we get them to feel that way without using terms like I deserve, I'm worth? Because I hear so many people say, you know, I'm worth more than, than what I'm making. And I'm always fascinated that the sentence is never real. That statement is never really complete because there's a question that should come after that. And that's to whom you're worth more to whom? Because if you were worth more to your employer based on what they know about your performance now, you'd be getting it. I'm not saying you're not worth it. I'm saying they don't see it. And it's incumbent upon us to show them. My, my background is in the fire service and uh, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about this and I, the conversations that I'd had with uh, other firefighters, other fire service professionals. And when you're sitting there thinking about how little firefighters make and what they do for a living, um, of course, it's worth more. You know, their, their value is, is higher. The problem is, is that the fire service has a really uh, poor way of communicating what they're actually delivering to the public who is responsible for paying us, you know? And there are some fire departments that do a great job of it. Um, and it's, it's, it shows in the pay of the firefighters and their benefits. Um, but those departments have to learn how to, you know, collect data so that they can, you know, tell the public and they've got to communicate to the public, you know, what they're doing. And that's you, you, the word data is such a great trigger word for the next part of that conversation, which is we, I, I, I talked about what the listener can do, but let's frame this in the conversation that's happening right now in the, in the public that the conversation about quiet quitting right i'm sure your listeners have now by now heard of that term this quiet quitting term and some people out there say that well quiet quitting is only doing what you're paid to do and nothing more and i couldn't disagree more that's not quiet quitting that's doing your job and if someone says well that's quiet quitting you don't understand what quiet quitting is so let me tell you what quiet quitting is Quiet quitting is doing less than what your job is and still retaining the pay. That's quiet quitting. That's what people are, are trying to do. say is how little can I give? How close to that line of uh, just complete abandonment of my job can I get without the, the higher ups noticing and letting me go or putting me on a performance plan? And the thing is that says less about the employee and more about the failure of leaders and organizations to even know what the hell they want their people to do while they're at work in the first place. For a really long time, Dave, the way that folks have uh, known that their job was done was the little hand on the clock pointed to five and the big hand pointed to 12. 
I mean, that's when I left at 5 p.m. And if you weren't there at 9 a.m., you were not doing your job. And we, we can see this in job descriptions or in employment agreements with that little word or that paragraph about other duties as assigned by management. That just tells me you have no idea what you really need me to do each day. It's about as silly as going to a restaurant, ordering a 10-ounce steak, finishing the steak and calling the server over and saying, hey, you know, excuse me, I am still hungry. And I'm just curious, could you bring me another two ounces of steak? Now the server's going to say to you, well, geez, I'm sorry, but we don't sell steak in two ounce portions. Now we have a six ounce steak. No, 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 I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I don't wanna pay for more steak. I just, I want some more steak, just, just two ounces, just a little more. And that server would say, honey, you have lost your marbles. We don't, we don't give away free food. You want steak, you gotta order it. Well, my friends, we're not in the habit of giving away work product. So if you want more than I'm contracted to do, you need to incentivize me appropriately. Organizations can't do that if they don't know what 100% is, they can't pay you for 110%. So as much as it relies on the individual in a performance conversation to advocate for themselves, I think the smarter thing for all employees, and honestly, it's gonna be better for the organizations too, to rally around is this idea of define what done is. Not by an hour, not by a clock, but by work product. Show me what you want me to produce each day from the receptionist all the way up to the senior executive. What do I need to produce? And then if I do it, if I do it by 10 a.m., I'm done for the day. Give me some motivation to innovate. Because here's, Dave, here's something I learned young because my dad was in the construction industry. I learned that on a job site, there's a rhythm. Okay, there, it's, it's not something that's talked about or necessarily taught in apprenticeships, but, but boy, you learn it. You learn it real quick. And that's the rhythm of the crew. If the rhythm of the crew is that we put up, and I'm gonna get these numbers wrong because I don't do this, but you know, 10 panels of drywall an hour, don't you put up 12. Don't you mess with that rhythm because we don't get paid to finish this job. We get paid to be here. So don't go faster than we have to. And they know exactly how slow they can go without the foreman coming over and lighting a fire under their backside. What if we incentivized job completion, not just time at work? Think of the road construction projects that could get done quicker if those crews were paid to complete the job, not just hourly to be there. There are so many inefficiencies, what I call legacy friction with the way we work. And that's why work sucks because we're just taught that, well, that's the way it is. Big shoulder shrug. I call it the Philly shrug because here in Philly, we do stupid stuff like park on the median in the center of the road because there aren't enough spaces in South Philly and people just go, hey, you know, that's the way it is. It's how it's always been. It's how it's always going to be. That's the way it is. I call BS. I think we need stronger leaders, leaders with courage and conviction to stand up and say, it may not be good for my personal pocketbook, but it's gonna be good for everybody if this changes. So I'm gonna be the one to make it. And we need those leaders in business, we need them in politics, we need more leaders like that. And that's the work, that's the end state that I'm on a mission to help people create. I call it a tip jar culture. And it comes from my time spent in the dueling piano bar. When the audience is, yes, my customer, but they're also my choir. 
They're just as much a part of the performance as I am. And it's because there's collaboration. There's appreciation shown between the players and the audience. And there is, <laughs> most importantly, there is a collaboration. It's not just, you're my audience and here's what I tell you to do. They're, they're filling out request slips. They're telling me what songs to play too. And we need that collaboration. We need that appreciation. And we need that participation in the business world. And if we want to put that in business terms, let's call it innovation, retention, and engagement. That's what the tip jar culture is all about. And once we get those three things, that's the end state. When we have engagement, retention, and innovation, we have an organization that's operating with a tip jar culture. One thing that I, I, I want to say, I saw it on your website where it was listed as like the, the four laws of performance and how they apply to our everyday lives. <clears throat> can you can you touch on that? Because that piqued my interest and uh, pretty curious. The four laws of performance. I don't know if I'd go as far as to call them laws. I'm, I'm going to have to take a look at my website because I'm not sure where that verbiage is. But there are four elements to putting a performance on stage that, that most performers in, in, the, in the arts world, let's say, that we're well aware of. But I don't see those reflected in the business world all the time. And I think that's a missed opportunity. I think it's a place where businesses can innovate. And so I've taken to calling this the performer's process. And so the, the, the four components of that are we choose a piece, we practice that piece, we rehearse that piece, and then we perform that piece. So in the business world, let's call it a skill. And, and Dave, I think this has never been more important because of the speed at which change is taking place right now. I mean, that's really why this has become at the forefront of my mind when I talk to learning and development professionals and HR professionals, and they say, what can we do to get an edge? What can we do to get a competitive advantage out there in the marketplace? And to me, the answer is be able to learn, unlearn, and relearn quicker than your competitors. If you can pick up skills, drop old ones, and then maybe relearn skills that you forgot a little while ago or that you haven't used in a while, if you can do that quicker than your competitor, you've got a, you've got a deadly, you've got a lethal advantage. I mean, you've got a really impressive advantage. So how do we do that? Well, that first step, choosing the piece you perform, that could be like choosing a skill to learn. And that's got to come from senior leadership. That's, that's their job. That's not my job. Their job is to have the vision of what does the organization need. But that second step, practice. I mean, I hated practice when I was young and I was learning the piano. I just wanted to get out there and perform. And I see so many companies that make that same mistake, that they just, they want their people out in the field performing. So they, they, they bring them in for a one-day seminar and they go, okay, you got it? Great, go implement it. And then we'll talk about how it's working. Hmm. See, the way I look at practice is you take that skill that the, the senior leadership has chosen and you break that down into manageable you call them bite-sized parts. Just like we take a piece of music and you break it into sections. In music, we call them measures. And so you practice a, I don't know, call it 32 bars. 30, a bar is another name for measure for those, of us who, those listening who aren't musically inclined, right? So you take 32 bars and you run through that. Well, if you want to teach the skill of appointment setting to some new salespeople, we can break appointment setting down. It's, it's, it's a big word, but there's a lot that goes into appointment setting. You have to 
figure out who you're going to call that day, set aside time to call, know about the prospects before you pick up the phone, know what you're going to say. So what your script is, understand how to handle objections and understand what comes next when you get somebody on the phone and you start prospecting, um, appointment setting rather. So we can break that down now into a couple manageable parts. So we re- we practice those individual parts. Then we rehearse it. Rehearsals when we pull it all together. Instead of 32 bars, you're, you're running through the whole song. But it's in a controlled environment. And what I love about the rehearsal environment is that you can amp up the pressure artificially. You know, this is what football teams do when they get ready for a big game and they blast like ACDC out of the speakers while they're running drills. But we don't do that in the business world. We don't take time to rehearse. At best, we may practice it once or twice, but then get it out on the field. Let's go perform. And this is, this is why some performances aren't successful in the business world. This is why some sales folks aren't ready when they go into that sales call. They haven't done enough practice and they sure as heck haven't done the rehearsal. But once we choose the piece or choose the skill, we practice it and we rehearse it, then we can go out there and perform it. That final element, the performance, becomes significantly easier when those first three components are achieved. When we choose a skill, we practice the skill, we rehearse the skill, we can go out and perform it better. So those are those, you know, laws of performance, maybe they're called, I, maybe that's old and I've just taken recently to calling it the performer's <laughs> process, but, you know, hopefully that clears that up for you because I think anybody who's listening, if they just pick anything they want to be good at, you know, whether it's could be learning a language, it could be learning a skill around the house, um, you can break it down into bite-sized parts and you can make skill acquisition really, really simple and you can become super effective at it. One thing that I saw on your website was <clears throat> the uh, performer's process and uh, something that you call a, a performance agreement. Mm-hmm. That, um, And I feel like this has something to do with what you were talking about early, earlier about the, the tip jar culture um, you know, incentivizing job completion. Am I on point there? So the performance agreement is a big piece of this tip jar culture conversation. Anytime performers step on stage, there's an agreement. It's an unspoken agreement. And the agreement is I will play my instrument. I will sing my part. I will do my job so that your job is easier to do, so that your part sounds better, not better than mine, but better than it would if I were trying to sing over you or outplay you. And from time to time, there's planned, manufactured conflict on stage, if you will, like in dueling pianos, people always wanna know who won the duel. It's not a real duel, it's manufactured. (laughs) It creates a little bit of fun. So nobody wins, really, the audience wins because they have a great time. But that agreement, that performance agreement, I think has gotten lost when it comes to how it's applied in business. And it's become me before thee. What's better for me is worse for you. I was at an event and I heard a senior leader of an organization say, there's only two types of people in this business world, the hunters and the hunted. Which are you? And I almost spit out my water, Dave, because I couldn't disagree with an intelligent person more. I mean, this person is very good at their job. They have a very successful organization. But if that's the attitude they're going out there with, I don't think they're going to continue to be successful for very long. 
because really we don't have competitors. Simon Sinek would say we have rivals, but I'd like to take it a step further and I'd say, what if we had partners? What if instead of the pharmaceutical industry operating as rivals, what if they operated as partners? Sure, you have your own P&L and you have your own goals for developing drugs, but just like, you know, it's maybe controversial for some, but just like the industry sort of banded together to try to identify a vaccine for COVID, what if they banded together for other initiatives? And I'm sure they do, and I'm just not exposed to that depth of the industry, but, but what if we knew more about that? What if some of the great telecom companies collaborated Maybe it's not to make your service or my service cheaper or better, but maybe it's to get low or no cost communications devices and service into the hands of people who live in the most remote or in the most impoverished areas of the world. What if instead of worrying about winning business, which we all know, thanks to Simon Sinek, nobody wins business, nobody wins life. What if we had partnerships? What could we accomplish? When I partner with people on stage, we accomplish unbelievable performances together. It's not necessarily because I'm a great musician or a good musician. It's not about my musicianship. It's about what we're able to do when we're working together towards a common goal. And that's what the organizations who bring me in, that's what they want. They want to achieve a common goal. But I think we could approach it, I think we could approach it in an uncommon way. And that's this partnership. So what is the performance agreement? It's the first three steps in getting to a tip jar culture. It's that participation, which I talked about earlier. It's that appreciation, which I mentioned earlier. And it's the collaboration I was sharing with you. When organizations implement their performance agreement, and it starts to actually happen, it's not just words on a page, it's actually taking place in the organization. They embody a tip jar culture. They're a place people want to come back to again and again, I call them encore experiences. Their places the employee wants to come back to. Their businesses the customer wants to interact with. Their leaders that we want to work for again and again and again. Can you talk a little bit more about each one of those steps that you just outlined? Like what is what is each one look like in whatever given field you want to use as an example and what How, how do you know if you're doing it right? I think the answer is different for every company, but when we talk about participation, when an, when an organization says, how do I get more participation? You need to understand your audience. I talked about comfort songs earlier and that the, the purpose of that first song that each of us play isn't really to perform the song, it's to be able to observe the audience and identify which of the three types of people or how many of the three types, because there's generally a good mix, how many of the three types of people in any audience are in my audience? And those same three types of people are in every organization. Once we understand what our audience wants, we can engage them, right? That first step participation, like I said earlier, is all about engagement. So we engage them, they participate in the experience. Next comes appreciation. Good question to ask is, you know, what's in my tip jar? And what do my people want in theirs? And yes, at a piano bar, what goes in my tip jar is generally money. But that's from the audience members. I've got another tip jar. It's one that you don't see. It's one you can't put money on. But it's when a bartender or a server brings me a glass of water or a cocktail 
during my performance. I can't get up. They're helping me. That's a tip. It's not, you know, you might not call it a tip. It might just be being a nice person, but that's a tip. What's going in your tip jar? What's going in the other people's tip jars? Once we start to identify that and we live the idea of appreciation, not just, not just recognition like, hey, Dave, job well done. Thanks. That's cheap. Didn't cost you a thing and probably doesn't mean much to me. I mean, it's nice to hear. I love to be told I did a good job. But if you want my discretionary effort, you need to provide discretionary incentive. Doesn't have to be money, but it needs to be something valuable to the other person. And then that, that final component of the performance agreement, collaboration, as corny as this is to say, it's more about safety than anything else. I've got to know it's safe to collaborate with you. I've got to know that if I give you a song idea, Dave, you're not going to go, that's stupid, man. Next. Like, you know, practice to, to, to take a line from some of my friends in the improv world. Practice a yes and mentality. Okay. Okay, so, so you've got that and how can we make that bigger, better, bolder, more cost effective, whatever the answer is. Creating a culture of collaboration is that third step. You've helped some pretty impressive organizations achieve more. And like, what what is one of the gigs that you've had that you're most proud of and, and why? Hmm. Well, I don't get asked that question often, but I would say it was delivering a speech at Valley Forge Military Academy uh, at my alma mater. I love my corporate audiences. I mean, they, they quite literally pay the bills. Um, but I love being able to work with kids because one of the things I was privileged to experience going to Valley Forge Military Academy was to have a plethora of people come in and speak. Twice a week, we would hear guest speakers, and I heard some unbelievable speakers. I've heard U.S. presidents come in and speak. Uh, the current uh, Democratic candidate for governor in the state of Maryland, Wes Moore, he and I went to that school at the same time together, and he is uh, not only a wonderful person, but an incredibly gifted orator. He's a wonderful speaker. And so that, that not only inspired me, but it excited me. Being asked to go and speak in the place where these amazing minds have stood and have spoken and having that opportunity to connect with the kids who are the cadets. I shouldn't call them kids. That's not demeaning, but it's certainly not right. These cadets uh, that, are, that are undergoing their own journey, um, getting the opportunity to share my insights. And, and I am the first to admit that my first two and a half years of my four years at that school were very rocky. I was, I did not get off to the best start from a disciplinary standpoint or buying into the, you know, the idea of, you know, standing up straight and standing at attention and saluting other people. I was trying to push back as hard as I could, but once I fell in line, thanks to some great mentors that I had there, I really flourished. And so to be able to have the opportunity to give back in that way is something that just lights me up. You mentioned your mentors. And, and I would imagine this is important in, in some of the talks that you give, but how do you address the importance of mentoring and, you know, developing these high performance teams? I mean, I think you just say it. I think you just say mentors are important. And a challenge that organizations often have is uh, when a manager tries to become a mentor or maybe even more problematic is the manager who tries to become the coach. 
there's a real a real challenge not only in the business world but i think the world at large with with honesty right now um truthfulness and i'm not saying that in a tongue-in-cheek way i mean i mean we 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 lie so often um and they're not malicious big lies but they're they're often these little lies um that in an interview process you know we want to get on to the next round of the interview so instead of using it as a real fact-finding mission and trying to identify reasons not to work for a company we spend the whole interview trying to persuade them to hire us because we want the job we want the benefits you know whatever it is that we want about that and in some cases the same thing's happening at the company they they want to fill that role they want to get somebody in there uh the manager maybe doesn't want to continue to go through this hiring process over and over and over again so they are not completely candid they paint a rosier picture than they probably should of earning opportunity or of job expectations because of these lies we're not able to operate as effectively efficiently um, or as excitedly as i think we would if we were more direct and more honest and that honesty often happens with a coaching relationship coach generally is somebody you pay so they're not going to fire you um, they're not going to keep you from your next promotion. In fact, they're incentivized to help you get the next promotion. But at work, your manager can fire you. Um, your manager can deny you a pay raise. Your, your manager can do all sorts of things. So it's scary to be open and honest and vulnerable with them. I'm not saying that managers can't be mentors or great coaches. I'm just saying that objective third party can be incredibly valuable. I love getting to have conversations with HR professionals and, and, and working with HR groups. I'm, I'm speaking to two different state SHRM conferences as their keynote speaker in the next couple months. What I love most about the people in HR, when they get this, when they get this concept and they own it and believe it, they are the arbiter of talent in every organization. Theoretically, I think it, it, it is this in practice, no one enters or exits an organization without interacting with HR. They are the bastion of that organization's uh, culture in a way. So they have a very important job to do. Because I believe that an organization, th th this concept of like company culture, you know, what is your culture? And even with tip jar culture, an organization uh, develops and, and, and starts to imbue a tip jar culture because the people believe in and operate that tip jar culture. It doesn't stay with the organization. Like just as an example, uh, the Coca-Cola company brings me in, let's say, right. And I, and they, they want me to do, to help their organization transform and they want to imbue and embody this, this ideal, this idea of a tip jar culture. It's not necessarily changing the company. Like a company is nothing more than a legal designation. It's a piece of paper that says, you're a company, pay your fee every year to the government, and you're a company. Really, what they want to do is they want to transform their people. That's, you know, when I talk about business growth and business transformation, it's about the people. You want to grow the business, grow your people. Quit trying to churn customers and grow the P&L and all these fancy financial machinations and maneuvers the company can do. Well, we shift this here and shift that there. We can have this ROI grow. Stop. Just make your people better and they'll make everything else better. Not make them technically better. Like Bob doesn't need to better, you know, to be a better user of a spreadsheet and Susie doesn't know how to better operate a forklift more quickly. They need to be more empathic. They need to understand the principle and the practice of gratitude. 
They need to expand their ideas through leveraging curiosity and creativity. That's how innovation happens. These aren't technical disciplines per se. They're more tactical. They're soft skill. And so you talked about that duality of personality, right? The masculine and feminine energy. Like, I think we are way too doubled down on the masculine energy and the ideals in business. And that's, this isn't male or female. This is sort of a crunchy granola part of the conversation, but the, the masculine energy is like, dude, I get it. Money's money's helpful. It's great to make money. The feminine side of that conversation is does what we're doing to make that money matter to the world or does it just matter to a few people? And we started off this idea of the individual advocating for themselves better when they say I'm more valuable. And the question is to whom? When a business says we're better, I don't care if you're better than your competitors. Who are you better for? I don't care who you're better than. I care who you're better for. And I don't think there's enough businesses out there that have the cojones, that have the courage to stand up and say, I'm not interested in being better than my competitor. I want to be better for my, my customer, better for this, or this, this world, this globe that we live on. And by doing that, being better than my competitors will take care of itself. This type of conversation, this type of learning and yeah, looking at the pictures that you play in your piano on stage, I'd like to know how you, uh, you know, bring that into your performance, you know, into your, your lessons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, look, if, if, if people want to connect with me, if they want to see more or, or, or know more about that, I mean, you, you know, like you've done, you can go to my website and there's some videos there. You can YouTube, uh, LinkedIn, Instagram, all, you know, all that stuff. I, I guess kind of being on podcasts and everything now, my life is sort of an open book at this point. So, yeah. um, you know, I'd love for people to reach out and, and connect with me, however they, however they best enjoy that. And if they enjoyed the conversation to tell you and uh, tell me and, you know, connect on LinkedIn and, um, just keep this conversation going because you and I get to start it, but really my work is done when other people carry this back to their organizations and say, Hey, have we thought about what participation looks like here in our organization? What would that look like if we had a tip jar culture? Because you can take the other extreme of the piano bar and you can say, you know, classical piano concert. And for, for your listeners who are classical piano enthusiasts, I have nothing against classical piano. In fact, I'd say anyone who takes the stage as a classical pianist is 10 times more talented than I am when it comes to piano. But they perform in a very controlled environment. They perform a very specific set of, let's call it a task, specific set of tasks, which is to say the songs that they've practiced and rehearsed uh, for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks leading up to this concert that they're going to deliver. And they perform it in a very controlled environment. You know, no one's allowed to talk. No one's allowed to leave. In some theaters, you're not even allowed to bring in a cocktail. Jeez. Oh, and at the end, the only way we show our, our applause is, you know, is, is we clap a little bit. I don't, I don't even think, at least in, in the one that I saw recently, that folks don't even shout encore. So now juxtapose that with a piano bar. It's a volatile environment. There's, there's booze going around. People are coming and going. Some folks are throwing money up on the piano. Some folks are hooting and hollering, celebrating birthdays, bachelorettes, whatever. Um, it is uncertain 
how long they're going to stay, how, what the song they're going to ask for, who's going to come in. Is it going to be a slow night, a fast night, overwhelming night, crowd line out the door? Who knows? Is it complex? Yeah, there's a lot of moving parts. We have bartenders, servers, piano players, hostesses, wait staff. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. Um, is it ambiguous? Because now you see I'm talking about VUCA. When we talk about this innovative world, this complex world and managing change, you might have heard the term VUCA. That stands for volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Well, in a way, it's ambiguous because I have no idea what song request is coming up next. And I have no idea how the crowd's going to react. You know, sometimes I get a Britney Spears request and the crowd goes crazy. And sometimes they boo. So we have to be able to think on our feet, respond quickly to a changing and dynamic crowd, and create an engaging experience that makes them want to come back again and again. Which sounds more like your business environment? A classical piano concert or the piano bar. That's why this tip jar culture is so valuable for organizations to implement and embody. It's, it's responsive to the demands of today where uh, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Who knows what's going to happen in an hour from now, I think, the way things are, Dave. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Man. Thank you so much, Gregory. I, I really, really enjoyed this conversation. And for those listening that enjoyed it and you want to learn more, I will have the link to, to Gregory's website in the show notes. Definitely check it out. There's a ton of information on his website. Um, you can check out those videos and the links, all his social media is on there as well. So definitely check out his website, see what he's offering uh, because I mean, you might not be the one making the decisions on who comes and speaks to your organization, but you can be the one that tells them about Gregory and uh, encourages them to to do so. So thank you. Thanks That's for kind of you, talk, Dave. Man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Sure. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.